1: Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week.
0: And that email was from a woman who was really confused by something I had said a couple of weeks ago. She actually said, You know, I just wanted to mention that in your episode, Survive Sexual Addiction, you mentioned that um, a partner had really been hurt by her husband because he had exchanged sexual acts that included oral sex with a prostitute. Now, this partner said, you know, Carol, that triggered me, and I was wondering how to look at this. Should I think of this as the husband wanting to manipulate the prostitute or do I look at it as this was a way for the husband to feel like a bigger, cooler man? And then she says, it does sound relational and it is super traumatizing. Thank you for your help in the past and the future. So, you know, one of the things I said was, you know, you're exactly right. We'll call her Sarah. You're exactly right, Sarah. It is very triggering because this man gave the prostitute oral sex to please her, and that's relational. Now, it was a double trigger and trauma, and it hurt his partner badly. It did make him feel um, more important It did feed his ego, and on some level he used that as a way to minimize his exploitation of her. Now, we all know that sex addicts exploit prostitutes, escorts, massage parlors, blah, blah, blah. And then we also know that those services exploit him too, and so on some level, he really was hoping to minimize his exploitation and maximize the fact that um, he was trying to do something for her that was also pleasurable. Now, for any of my sex addicts out there, I've got to tell you, sex is not pleasurable in the service industry. It is a means for money. And don't fool yourself and think that they're actually getting off and being happy and wanting this. This is their job. And that's not to make you feel shame or blame, but it is a reality check. And so, again, Sarah, you know, what I know is that it is very triggering for a partner to think that there was this intimate act that occurred between a prostitute and a sex addict and that the sex addict was delusional enough to feel like this was really pleasing her when really she's counting the clock, she's wondering when it will be done, she's wondering when she'll get her money, and she's wondering when she'll go on to the next john. Now, you may say, Carol, how do you know that? You don't know that. Well, I do know that. When you've worked in this field this long, you realize that this industry is exhausting. And these women, or men, but in this case I'll talk women, want to complete the transaction to get back to the next transaction and to make more money. Most of them have been sexually abused and exploited in the past. And now they have turned their sexual trauma into a reenactment where they exploit others. And that's the deal. Hey, I was on vacation last week, so I hope that you really enjoyed the show that I aired, and it was kind of fun. Um, about 10 days ago, I was quoted in USA Today because one of the things that we know is that the World Health Organization, which is the, the biggest organization that classifies disorders around the world, um, had decided to include sexual addiction in their medical diagnostic classification.
2: Now, here's the deal.
0: They're not calling it sex addiction. And instead, they are making it broader and allowing it to, in a lot of ways, engulf a lot of different issues. Who? or the World Health Organization, defines compulsive sexual health disorder as a persistent pattern of failure to control intense repetitive sexual impulses or urges resulting in repetitive repetitive sexual behavior. And they have now, again, used this compulsive sexual health disorder and put it in the International Classification of Diseases. This is super exciting for any of us that have worked with sex addiction because that means that the World Health Organization, the DSM-5 or 6, the medical establishment are going to see sex addiction for what it is, a compulsive issue whereby men and women are unable to stop the behavior, where men and women are so engulfed in this behavior that they ruin their lives, they ruin their relationships, they ruin their families, and they ruin their work. The new classification means that sex addiction, a term popularized before research designated the condition as compulsive sexual health disorder, can be diagnosed based on a list of criteria which include, and here you go, If you're a sex addict in recovery, how many of these did you meet? Repetitive sexual activities becoming the focus of a person's life, numerous unsuccessful efforts to reduce sexual behavior, and continued sexual activity despite deriving little satisfaction from it. You know, anybody who's worked with addiction knows that um, with any kind of drug addiction, After the first high, whether it be cocaine, heroin, methadone, methadone, meth, um, it has to do with the chase to reestablish that same high, and it just doesn't happen. You know, there was a time when alcoholism was a fatal illness and there was no cure and you were going to die of it. We don't look at alcoholics and drug addicts and say you're a bad person. We say you have a problem. That's a quote from my buddy Rob Weiss, who I was I was quoted in this article. And experts also say that this new classification will chip away at a larger goal. It'll destigmatize sex addiction. Treatment can range from therapy sessions to stays at rehabilitation facilities to simpler methods such as prayer and journaling as well as the eight other recovery tools that Patrick Carnes talks about. Now, that is a quote by me. Um, Many people don't seek it out because they don't think that it's a real issue. They think it's immoral behavior or bad behavior. I said, if somebody doesn't know what to call this disease, this disorder, this illness, they will not know how to get help for it, and they'll continue to try to do it on their own. And you know, we all know as certified sexual addictions therapists that trying to do it on your own results in inability to stop. They aren't able to control it. They're not strong enough. They need a committee, and that committee, committee is typically a support group. Maybe it's a 12-step group. Maybe it's Recovery Nation. Maybe it's Smart Recovery. But in addition to that, we'll include things like, and I know you understand this, a sponsor or a mentor, um, a specific manual that you follow. In the 12 step community, that happens to be the 12 steps. And in Smart Recovery, that's a Smart Recovery Manual. If you've done Recovery Nation, there's a whole whole list of coaching assignments to get through and then it involves fellowship it involves working with a specialist somebody who knows and it involves um, going through therapy uh, group therapy going through therapy with a CSAT you know that's me a certified sexual addiction therapist now, the cost of treatment ranges from free online services to pricey inpatient rehab programs. And typically, people with sex addictions will only be covered if they're diagnosed with a concurring mental health disorder, such as anxiety or depression. So, I, as well as many therapists, are waiting for that change. I mean, I don't know anybody that has this disorder who doesn't suffer from addiction, um, depression, anxiety, you and I both know that most people that have sex addiction don't just suffer from that. Maybe they suffer from workaholism. Maybe they suffer from drug and alcohol addiction. Maybe they suffer from a gambling problem. There are all sorts of issues. So Rob White says, we hope that insurance companies might be willing to now pay for the treatment more directly And that is a good thing. Even if sex addiction loses its stigma and treatment becomes more accessible, the disorder can carry another uh, connotation. Sex addiction has frequently been cited by individuals who have committed sex offenses. Now, this is where they got me wrong. They quoted me wrong. You know, they were asking me about Harvey Weinstein, and I said, you know, you've heard me say this on the show, I don't think, I have no reason to believe he had sex addiction because there was no, um, there's no information that says he wanted to stop. There's no information that says it wasn't bad from the get-go. Uh, now it has interfered with his life, but we don't know how it interfered with his life before. And what we do know is that he was probably an offender. And despite the fact that he spent time at a high-end facility for the treatment of sex addiction, we want people to know that sex addicts and sex offenders are two very different categories. And most sex offenders do not meet the criteria for sex addiction. And most sex addicts never commit a sexual offense. Dr. Milt Magnus, my buddy, a sex addiction therapist and director of a counseling service in Houston, tries to explain the difference. And I say, boy, a crucial aspect of sex addiction is wanting to fix the problem and being unable to. And I haven't seen that in sex offenders. Now, I've worked with sexual abuse, and I do know that they feel bad about themselves, but more often than not, that need to exploit is for power and control, not sex addiction. So we're really excited that the World Health Organization is now going to put, put this behavior into um, a diagnostic manual and a classification that will help to take the morality out of it. Because what we all know as sex addiction specialists is that this is a condition that is often deeply misunderstood. All righty. So that is super exciting. And remember, what you're going to hear it called is compulsive sexual health disorder. That's what we think it's going to be called. I, I heard earlier problematic sexual behavioral problems. You know, we don't care what you call it. Because the classification and the criteria for sex addiction falls under all those headings. We just want the men and women that we work with, the families we work with, and the couples to get the help that they so much deserve. And that is a little bit about the World Health Organization. Now, tonight I have an expert in the field of love addiction. And I am going to be interviewing Kelly Daniels, who is an expert in the field and has written a book. It's 10 years old. She's now re-released it with a chapter on mother hunger. You know, so many people say, how did I get this sex addiction or how did I get this love addiction? And what we know to be true is a certain percentage of you, um, fell into these patterns of behavior because of family of origin issues. And so I can't wait to talk with Kelly about this pre-existing factor called mother hunger because she has coined that term to describe a predisposition for a lot of people who suffer from love addiction. So, Kelly, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Carol. I'm happy to be here with you.
0: Absolutely. You know, I feel so grateful to have you on the show because you were really one of the first that talked about love addiction and sex and love addiction, gave it a name, and differentiated it from sex addiction because it really is two very separate criteria. Can you share a little bit about the differences?
2: Well, I think that... The main difference from where I were, and I want to clarify that I primarily work with women, and most of my research has been with women, and my book was written for women. So I think because of the specificity of the population that I am um, working with, I needed to broaden the understanding of what addiction to a relationship or addiction to sexuality or addiction to love really is Um, because there aren't many women um, who feel comfortable or at home with the term sexual addiction given that we live in a culture that has created sexuality to carry a, a huge taboo for women like men can be sexual as they develop as they grow and there's some pride in that Whereas as women grow and develop and want to move toward a sense of being sexual, that's not okay. There's not a healthy route for most women. If they go toward their sexuality, they are seen as promiscuous. If they go away from their sexuality, they're labeled as a prude. There's not a healthy map. So to look at what could happen to a developing young girl, um, culturally, it would make sense that she would have to keep her sexual self a secret. And we both know that addiction thrives in secrecy. So there are cultural reasons that the development of a sexual self for a woman would be complicated. So we don't really complicate it by making the name also a problem. So I think that naming is carries a lot of power. And women may find a way toward recovery when they feel that the name has room for them. And so to look at relationships that become addictive, to look at obsession, to look at um, behavior that a woman finds really disturbing because she doesn't feel like that's accurately who she is, yet she's doing it anyway, we can call that love addiction. We can call that sex addiction. It's not really black and white. And actually, Carol, the brain doesn't necessarily differentiate
0: no, I absolutely understand that. And my listeners know that when we talk about love addiction or sex addiction, we are talking about a brain issue, a brain compulsion. yeah and that's what we have to really look at at changing is the way the brain reacts to different stimulation. So, I so admire the fact that obviously, this is your tenth anniversary from the book, and you have done a revision. Um, and you've included mm-hmm. paper. Yeah. so right. I was tweaking things and we, we are we're learning so much every year aren't we Kelly
2: isn't it so true I mean I'm working on a book now and I'll get something written and the new research comes out and I just want to go scrap it and rewrite <laughs>
0: <So> <laughs>
2: it, it takes a while yes
0: absolutely so now of course, I'm wondering what made you decide to research this and give us a little background on that.
2: I'd love to, and thank you for your thoughtful questions. And I think we jumped right in, and I didn't even really say, hey, thanks for having me, <laughs> but I do appreciate the chance to get to talk with you, and I love that you offer this service for your audience Um It's so helpful when you can bring these topics into language and bring them to a place where they're accessible for for your listeners. So thank you, Carol, for the work that you're doing, Um, and thank you for having me. I got
0: to tell you, I am the grandmother of Sexual Addiction Radio. My show was the first one. We have over a half a million open downloads a week. And people can't get enough information about what's out there. So your book, Ready to Heal, you know, was one of the very first in terms of sex and love addiction. So just give us a quick overview of your book and then why you decided to write it.
2: Well, I would love to give an overview of the book, and I, I want to talk about maybe some of my favorite parts of it, but I also want to give some credit to some of the women that came before me. Um, Charlotte Castle wrote a book, Women, Sex, and Addiction, that um, probably was 10 years before mine. Pia Melody has done wonderful work in the field of love addiction, and I've trained with Pia, and her work is brilliant. Her book is fabulous. Um, And I couldn't have found a voice without those women coming before me. And then there's Dr. Carnes, who I trained with and learned about um, his model of treating sex addiction. And it was in his training that I felt um, exhilarated because there was so much hope for an addiction that really is like a food addiction. Like, okay, you have to eat. And with sex and with love, we're not meant to be without these the nourishing touch of sexuality and the comfort of love of connection. So he was pioneering. And, and yet when I was training, I was seeing that the model that would work for men didn't feel accurate for women. Um, I have a graduate degree in women's studies for from when I was just a young woman in my 20s and did my undergraduate work in English and then graduate work in English and studied women's studies. And I read Adrienne Rich when I was probably 21 years old, and she wrote this wonderful book called Of Woman Born. And in her book, and she published this in 1977, Carol, in her book she says that daughters form a concept of self in this first relationship with their mothers, the woman who has felt unmothered may seek mothers all her life, may even see them in men. Some will marry looking for a mother. Well, I found that even as a young woman, that was a profound truth that that hit me. But it was 10 years later before I went to graduate school for to be a therapist and began studying what I thought was going to be other addictions, but I was pulled to understand the nature of love and realize that the cultural programming that women inherit seems can you hear me? Yes, I sure can. oh good. that the cultural programming that women inherit and then pass down to their daughters and then their granddaughters um, is about almost not being worthy of love being second-class citizens, growing up in a world where women are not given the same authority as men, and this comes out sexually, and it comes out in our belief about ourselves.
0: So, and, and so it, that experience of not, it's not, not necessarily mother, well, it's a mother hunger, but you, it can show up in your relationships with men as well as with women.
2: Oh, definitely, definitely. Okay,
0: and so the, the term that mother hunger... like yeah,
1: what does that well, look like? Well, the term...
2: Right. The term mother hunger really speaks to a yearning for love that happens in the early part of an infant's life. You know, babies are born to be held, to be nurtured, to find that the world is a safe place. But if a baby's born to a mother who doesn't like herself or isn't safe or can't stay regulated, she's going to have a hard time loving that baby. Mother hunger refers to this early attachment injury that comes from not receiving basic early developmental needs. And so what happens for a little infant girl who can't feel safe with her mother is she will find new ways, she will find solo ways to nurture and take care of herself. If she's lucky, she's got um, other caregivers. Let's say if mother's not available, father is, or um, a grandmother or an aunt. So those attachment needs could be transferred to someone else, but if that someone else is not safe, she's really set up to take care of herself. So a lot of women that I see that are struggling with intimacy learned very early in life I'm going to have to do this myself. I'm basically not worthy of love.
0: Well, and certainly Dr. Patrick said early on that in some ways that kind of neglect is way worse than actual physical, sexual, or emotional abuse because it's so invisible. People don't know what you didn't grow up with. And if you don't have those affirmations – you really end up looking for them in all the wrong places.
2: That's exactly what we do. We will recreate automatically and unconsciously a love that feels familiar to us. So if that was a mother, let's say, who was struggling with her own um, depression Maybe she was struggling with other forms of mental illness or addiction. That's going to feel familiar to our nervous system to be with someone who's unavailable, to be with someone who can't really see us, to be with someone who's so dysregulated that we can't quite regulate ourselves while we're with that person.
0: Well, and for our listeners, Carol, now, you share yes. what dysregulation yes. means? I mean, that's a clinical term. And what.
2: For- Give us some examples of dysregulation. Exactly. Okay, sure. You're right. That is a clinical term, and it's become so common in in language that I forget that. So thank you. Um, Another way of talking about being dysregulated is someone who, and these kind of diagnoses, these kind of terminologies really bother me, but when we call women moody, moody, Or we say that she is hostile or angry, or we say she's needy or dependent. I mean, there's so many negative ways that we label behavior that is basically, essentially human. It's not gender. It's human. This is regular, normal behavior that says, I need a connection. When we don't get the connection that we need, we do get moody. When we don't get the connection that we need, we might get really angry. We might get very withdrawn. We could get violent. We could be um, isolating. And so these are all symptoms of a nervous system that's dysregulated. And women only regulate themselves. We learn to regulate ourselves in the relationship with our primary caregiver, our first love, our mother's. And if she couldn't do it, because, because maybe her mother couldn't do it, because the world was not a safe place for women, then we don't know how. Okay, and so
0: when this primary need is not met, um, yes. we as survivalists look for it in yes. any other way that we can find it, whether it's affirmation because exactly. we're sexual, promiscuous, um, loving, friendly, dependent, codependent, you know, I'm just sure there's a variety of different ways that we meet that.
2: There definitely are. And the ways that you're talking about really come a little bit later in development, early adolescence and um, really after about the age of, seven, eight, and then on through our teenage years. That's when we learn to be people-pleasing. That's when we learn to put on a good girl face. That's when we might become rebellious. That's when we might be show signs of being angry. The wound I'm talking about is what's underneath all that behavior that happens before we have language. When those needs Stop. are not met and we can't, we can't ask for them to be met and we can't fake our way, Little girls will auto-regulate. They will either learn to suck their thumb. They will learn to down-regulate by going to sleep. They will scream. They will throw tantrums. They might, if they're lucky, have a stuffed animal. Um, many little girls will turn to food to soothe that emptiness um, And those are the first objects that are available for a little girl are her own thumb or some food. And little girls might learn to masturbate before they even know that's what they're doing because they're soothing themselves. It feels good. It puts them to sleep. And if no one's responding to their cry or someone is shaming them or hitting them or abusing them, these are the resources that she has to help her survive. Those those other resources of being nice and, caring for other people, those come later.
0: Okay, so then at what age would you say that mother hunger begins to display itself?
2: It depends on how tuned in the people around you are, Carol. Um, I can see signs of mother hunger in children. Mm-hmm. Early mm-hmm. signs of mother hunger get often misdiagnosed as ADHD, um, temper tantrums, um, children who are isolating themselves. These are clear signs that this child is not trusting her environment and doesn't know how to calm and be with other people. She doesn't trust mm-hmm. the world. Those are early signs of mother hunger. More advanced signs of mother hunger come with eating disorders, drug and alcohol addiction, sex and love addiction. And those are the signs that by the time someone gets into our offices, if we're working with adults, which I do, I don't work with children. um, That's more what we're going to see. And those are very sophisticated adaptations to dealing with a very primal early wound that really has no language. So therefore makes no sense. Right. So most people that have a mother hunger don't even know that they do. They have just this vague sense that, something's wrong with me. I I mean, I'm broken. No one could love me. A lot of this is what Patrick Carnes was identifying um, when he was talking about the beliefs of a, of a sex addict. For women, I find the nuance is um, it's very, very painful for her to have friendships as well as sexual relationships, even though she keeps trying.
0: Well, that makes all the sense in the world. And so If you get a woman who comes into your office, what Mm -hmm. are some of the criteria that you might um, diagnose for the sex addict, a female who's a sex addict, versus a female who's a love addict?
2: Great question, Carol. There, um, There are clear differences in a woman who's primarily demonstrating a love addiction. Um, and a woman who's primarily demonstrating a sexual addiction. The root is the same. The root is isolation. The root is I'm unlovable. But there are different nuances. For example, women who tend to demonstrate more on the spectrum of sex addicts, for instance, their primary attachment may be to pornography. They say to me, I feel like I'm a man. I act out as if I'm a man. I I don't want to fall in love. These people bore me. Okay? Women that demonstrate in this manner tend to be more avoidantly attached. In fact, if I talk to them about their parents or their upbringing, they don't really care. They don't want to talk about it. They feel very dismissive about their upbringing. They may be dutiful and well-mannered, but in general, very indifferent. And the concept of yearning for love or mother's love is nowhere near consciousness. For a woman who's a love addict, on the other hand, mm-hmm. she is going to be very aware that she's yearning for some kind of love and she can't get it. She's going to be more um, aware that something was missing in her upbringing. She may even be able to identify that she wished she could have had more affection from her mother, more time with her mother, um, or with her father, or with a sister. I mean, basically, she may be aware that she was in love with everyone and never got enough from anyone, um, including in her current life. So I'm talking about two extremes of the spectrum right now. Most women come in somewhere in the middle, right, where their attachment style is somewhat disorganized, and in some relationships they're more... um, Independent, easily bored, and in another relationship, they find themselves almost obsessing and stalking someone and This is the same woman, but she's attracting different partners that play out different ways that her attachment styles being triggered.
0: Well, that definitely makes sense. so with love addiction, um, there is an attachment deficit that occurs a, a wounding from childhood of not really being affirmed or loved or stroked or cared for that attachment is broken and so you coined this term mother hunger because you felt it was really appropriate to that developmental need that never got met is that correct
2: exactly and that seemed to be a piece that, for me, was also tied to cultural upbringing. You know, if we're born to someone who is already wounded, if we're born to someone who didn't get to develop her own dreams, her own life, maybe she's frightened in the relationship she's in. Maybe she's addicted. Maybe she's depressed. What does she have to give us? And this is our first environment in her womb in her uterus. Epigenetically, we're going to inherit her belief system. We're going to inherit her nervous system. So we're brought into a world where our first environment is our mother's way of seeing the world around her. Does this make sense?
0: Oh, 100%. You know, I do EMDR, and one of the things that we really have recognized is the kind of deprivation that can occur in the womb. And the yes. fact that you know, if a mother is unhappy about being pregnant, if she doesn't want the baby, if, if yeah. she's negative, that affects the, the genetics within the child.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And it's such a painful legacy um, for a woman to unlearn nonverbal beliefs about herself that she breathed in, like... I think it's Brene Brown that talks about, Hey, we're all swimming in the water of patriarchy, you know? So literally if the uterus, which is a water like environment, we're breathing in a woman that doesn't want us um, for whatever reason, it could be that she's in danger and this is not the right time for her. That becomes our belief system that we are not supposed to be here. And the women that I work with, Carries this common thread of feeling uncomfortable in their own skin, in their own body, and really this longing that someone or something, like the like chasing an orgasm or chasing the high of falling in love, will finally make everything okay.
0: Well, and you and I both know that love addiction that goes untreated ends up being a love and sexual trauma reenactment because. As an adult, these people aren't able to get the attachment that they deserve. And so they keep reenacting that trauma that they experience as a young child.
2: Oh, that's so well said, and it's so sad, and it's so true, that mm-hmm. whatever we inherited as a love map, that's what we're going to continue to find and reenact and rewound ourselves. And so for a lot of the women that we are lucky enough to help, by the time they come in for treatment, they're in so much pain and almost hopeless that anything, because nothing has.
0: Yeah, I know. And there's nothing more frustrating than not being able to get those basic needs met. Now, can you talk to me a little bit about if someone has struggled with mother hunger if they know that they've never had a bond with their mother or the attachment that they craved or wanted, when might it be a good time to start another relationship? I mean, how do they do that and when do they do it?
2: Well, you know, this is where I really love and trust the wisdom of the, the 12 Steps. Uh, you know, I, I I think that mother hunger is the root for a love addiction and a sex addiction, but you still have to treat the love and the d- sex addiction, right? <laughs> so, Right. Uh, someone who's who's struggling with mother hunger isn't even going to get to that wound until they've been acting in healthy, sober ways for a period of time. In other words, they've established some boundaries around the damaging behavior they've gotten some new friends they have enough support around them that they can begin to get deep enough to even feel the pain of what was Mm -hmm. underneath the sex addiction which is that belief that somehow my mother didn't love me she didn't love me enough to protect me from my father or she loved me too much to protect me from her right? There's the mother that's so needy that she takes her own child as a best friend. And that's also a form of neglect that's hard to name because it feels like, oh, I'm special. The truth is you're parentified. You had to be an adult. You had to take care of your needy mother. So your needs didn't get met. So really, Carol, I find that women don't begin to treat mother hunger until after the age of 40. Okay. Uh, I mean, some some are sophisticated, some get into recovery early enough that they might start a little bit earlier, but most of the women um, who begin to really work with this wound are 50, 60, and 70 years old, and they're already in relationship. They've been in relationship, or they've been without one, but I don't ever tell somebody they have to wait to be in a relationship until mother hunger is healed. Mother hunger is a lifelong journey of navigating a wound that is so primal that it, it 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 doesn't happen fast and it doesn't happen young. In fact, many women won't even discover it, name it, treat it until their mother is no longer on the planet.
0: Well, that makes sense. In some ways, it's when they've had that double betrayal of they didn't get it early on and then their mother is gone and they come to grips yes. with what they never had and they try to figure out... Yes. What was wrong with them, why didn't they have it, and they get into therapy. And, of course, you and I both really believe that these kind of issues, although they can be helped by some clinicians, it makes a lot more sense for them to go to a specialist. So let me just ask you, it, people need to read your book, Ready to Heal, and obviously it has been republished. There is the Mother Hunger um, chapter I think in that chapter two
2: actually I think chapter two is about the cultural beliefs that we inherit as women so it talks about ways we inherit these ideas that if I'm lovable I have to be sexual if I'm a good girl though I can't be sexual so it puts us in a double bind and it talks all about that these are issues that affect generations of women and where I really invite us not to be blaming women when we're talking about mother hunger because mothers were daughters Um, Chapter 7 in Ready to Heal is what I specifically dedicated to the discussion of Mother Hunger. And so, you know, this applies to women that don't even necessarily resonate with a sexual addiction or a love addiction, Um, although I primarily work with women who do. (laughs) Uh So it's Chapter 7. Yes.
0: Okay, and tell us, what is your website and how can people get this book?
2: Well, the book is available at Amazon. It's also available with Gentle Path Press, which um, is the publishing company that Dr. Patrick Carnes developed. And, um, but a woman, if she's interested in knowing more, could go to my website at kellymcdanieltherapy.com. And on my website, I have a link that would take her to Gentle Path or to Amazon. To order the book Um, and the first edition was in 2008 like you said 10 years ago and that's so exciting the second edition though the one with the mother hunger chapter expanded came out in 2012 so that's the edition I really encourage you women to purchase um, because I think that discussion is more relevant and helpful
0: Absolutely, and so you run intensives, do you not that absolutely deal with love addiction and mother hunger?
2: I do i um run two or three day intensives in and, and they're one on one work um, and the women that come to me to do these this deeper work are looking for an experience that Um, is highly confidential, very private, and tailored specifically to the concepts in my book that they would like to explore. These women already have a therapist. I work closely with their therapist to make sure this is an appropriate form of treatment because like the name, it's fairly intense. Um, And (laughs) I've never had somebody regret coming, um, but women are, are, are working hard and tired and, But, you know, we can do in one day what's really hard to do in one hour. Um, And we can do one-on-one things that are sometimes really difficult to achieve in a group, although I always like it when women can heal together. I think that that can be powerfully effective for shame reduction. So there are lots of good programs around us that are using my book as well that I like to see women also explore for their healing.
0: Well, absolutely. So as we begin to wrap up about love addiction and mother hunger, um, somebody who's listening and wondering, gosh, is this a concept that applies to me? So many of the factors that Kelly talked about occurred in my life. What would you tell them to do?
2: I would invite them to... To get a copy of Ready to Heal and read the chapter on Mother Hunger, um, I would invite someone to explore the concept of how important early attachment is to our well-being. I would really invite women not to pathologize themselves for wanting a relationship or rejecting a relationship. I I would just say that's not an accident. This did not happen in a vacuum. Right. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm and so
0: glad you said I, I, that because so oftentimes that pathology has either been given to them, or that's the shame yes. that they carry with
2: them, thinking
0: there must be something yes. wrong with
2: them. Exactly, Carol. And I just I, that's such a painful legacy and one that I I, I just really like to help release that burden. Um, that this is not an accident.
0: Well, and you have made it your mission. I mean, obviously, this is a topic near and dear to your heart. What inspired you to write about love
2: addiction and mother
0: hunger? I think
2: that's such a great question. You know, when I was a young woman, well, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a therapist. Now, what's that about? I think I was probably a caretaker in my family. I... um, I kind of always was watching out for the people around me. Human behavior mystified me and enchanted me and also baffled me. Um, But I got derailed, studied some other things. And then when I finally did get this degree, I thought I might be looking at eating disorders. I knew I was going to do something with women's issues, body image, because that had interested me my whole life because I'm a woman and I (laughs) grew up in the Rural South, which is a lot like a third world country in the way that gender roles are so polarized and strong, and women are meant to, and this is what I'm writing about right now in my new book women are designed to submit, to serve, and to seduce. Mm, that.
0: The three S's submit,
2: it, the three S's, and yes,
1: seduce and serve. serve. Mm-hmm. Uh
2: huh. Yes. So I think growing up with that kind of programming really predisposed me to examine culture, to look at what women are inheriting and how in the world does any woman not have a love addiction or a sex addiction? And if we're designing women to do this, how can we then pathologize her when she does? To me, it just seems like a creation for insanity. Um, And I felt very called to do some writing about this.
0: Well, you're right. Your women's affairs um, background put you already in in a place where you could develop that expertise and and advocate for women.
2: Exactly, exactly. I I think when I was in college, too, I was lucky to have these professors. These were dynamic women, and they were politically active, and it inspired me. I'd never seen anything like it where I grew up, and they were – from Michigan and they were from California and they were from New York and they were brilliant and they inspired me to claim power and voice and sexuality. I didn't even know I didn't have those things. (laughs) (laughs) It was not part of my upbringing to have those things. So a a lot of this is a personal journey into my own growing up that I think was developmentally delayed um, and inspired me to find a voice for women that don't have a voice as well as keep um, developing my own I was thinking today as I thought about the show and the 10 year anniversary of my book it's like the more I study which I'm doing right now as I write another book the more I realize I still don't know the more I want to know and I'm so mystified each time I get the joy of, of traveling with a woman to understand her own relationship history and gain her own voice
0: oh exactly 100 percent. and you know it's all about finding our voice because you can't get healthy unless there's an awareness that there's something that needs to be examined and worked on and then having the voice to figure out what is it that you need so you're a great well you're exactly right yeah
2: we can't, uh, yeah, and we you can't are it an advocate name
0: woman. It. No doubt about mm. it. So I, I want to ask you, as we absolutely talk about women and the work that they need to do, if somebody thinks that they're a sex and love addict or a love addict and they are experiencing this mother hunger, talk with us a little bit about relapse. What does the relapse behavior look like? And how can our listening audience recognize it?
2: I think relapse behavior for someone who is healing from addictive relationships, healing from addictive love or sex or a combination, relapse behavior must be redefined. We need to look at relapse through a different lens we cannot apply the lens that works with alcoholism or drug addiction we need to look at it more as we might a slip with a food plan or a slip with um you know i look at binging and purging as a spectrum that we try to find balance that's what we're all aiming for as humans is balance in our life. And when we're talking about sexuality, which is the core of who we are, we don't have one set of rules that if we break one rule, we're, we could say, oh, we failed. We're in a relapse. We're going we're gonna to make some mistakes. We're going to have some road that looks pretty sloppy. Um, and I'm really careful to um, cautiously use language to help frame what's happening so the woman doesn't go into too much despair and then can't come right back out. So depending on, yeah. And again, it depends on what the behavior is, how dangerous it is, how risky it is. But for each woman, it's very unique. And depending on her health, her status, the people that she's in charge of, if she's in charge of children, we can work on a damage control plan. So the fewer people, Fewest people possible get hurt, including herself, when and if she makes the inevitable mistake and returns to behavior that's familiar, that's wired in, but that is no longer healthy for her.
0: Okay, so that's a little bit about relapse. Is there anything else that you feel like our listening audience needs to know as they look into this for themselves or for people that they love. I mean, we've got a lot of men um, who listen in and may be worried that their wife or girlfriend is suffering from love addiction.
2: Right. Yes. And I'm hearing more and more from our colleagues, Carol, about men that are struggling with their own love addiction, sex addiction and wondering about um, you know, their abandonment issues, their hunger for their mother. And I Um, as different from the wonderful work that Ken Adams has done, where he's talked about mother enmeshment with boys. I think boys that are abandoned by their mothers experience this yearning for a love that very, very similar to what the daughters that I treat are looking at and the women are looking at. But as with any addiction, if you suspect that your partner is struggling with an addictive behavior, um, do you have power over that? No. Can you control that? No. So what do you do? You have a lot of boundaries for yourself so that you don't get eaten alive. Um, You have a lot of boundaries for yourself so that you get the love you need. Um, And then you see what you need to do. Because if we're with a love addict, we're with someone who's love avoidant, we're going to suffer just as the addict does. Both people are suffering because it, it hurts.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I want yeah. to thank you so much. I want to remind everybody that her second edition—this is the tenth anniversary for her book, "Ready to Heal." The second edition is out. It talks about mother addiction, mother hunger, and mm-hmm. really, you know, obviously, there are a lot of women who have soul-searched and known that their issues about wanting to find love and to be with a man that can really love them have known from for a long time that it had to do with their childhood. I think a lot of women mm. thought it had to do with their fathers. So this is fascinating right. that you're saying, oh, right. yeah, I could, but a lot of early childhood needs stem from mother. And if you didn't get that met, it can create some big holes. Um, Some big wounds need to be healed.
2: Yes, and I think when mother can't meet them, a daughter will transfer to someone who can, whether that's a pet, a sibling, or a father. And so where a lot of daughters do have issues as grown women with their fathers, those are legitimate. They probably turned to him if he was there for what they were not getting and hopefully He was healthy enough to manage it, but generally, he's not, and he may sexually misuse her. He may be angry with her. He may be abusive. He may be dismissive. He may be overly enchanted. So father-daughter issues are tricky. They are legitimate, but they don't negate that there's a mother wound. Because if mom is able to protect the daughter, if mom is able to meet the daughter's needs, a daughter doesn't turn to her father as a replacement. She might enjoy him as a supplement. Daughters who enjoy their fathers tend to do better as career women. You know, fathers who are proud of their daughters set their daughters up for success. But fathers are not meant to be a daughter's primary love attachment figure. They are a bonus. They are a supplement. They are a guide. They're a protector. And hopefully they're loving the mother. So a daughter sees that. But the women we work with have not seen these healthy things, right?
0: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Kelly McDaniel, yeah. thank you so much for sharing a, you know, this important topic and for anybody who's listening, her book, Ready to Heal, is available at Amazon and also uh, Gentle Path Press, and we just wish you all the success and can't wait to interview you when you get that second book done.
2: Well, thank you so much, Carol, and I really appreciate your insightful, attentive questions, and I appreciate you sharing me with your audience.
0: Absolutely. Look forward to talking with you again. You have a great day.
2: Alrighty, You
1: too. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. So obviously, Kelly McDaniel is an expert in this field, and if you want to check her out, you can read her book, Ready to Heal, and you can go to her website, um, which really um, helps you to understand more about breaking, breaking free of the addictive relationship, and that's Ready to Heal. And you can order it on GentlePath.com or at Amazon.com. And, you know, this is a woman who has made it her mission to help others work through those wounded souls. And you can go to KellyMcDanielTherapy.com and find out more about Kelly. So... It is that time, and I will see you next week. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And um, I appreciate the fact that you listen to the show and you're always working on you. Have a great week, and we'll catch you next Monday night, 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time for more Sex Health with Carol, the coach.